Cool. I've taken over the boss's <laughs> office. What? Sorry. It's a visual thing. The door is open what? to the conference room, and Calvin just went tiptoeing by, like so he couldn't wouldn't make any noise. So Scott and I, facing the door, both laughed. <laughs> okay. So give me so give me a countdown for the first one. Let's get this one out of the way real quick here. Five, four, three, two, one. Look at them, madam. Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. Oh. This is the gentle art of philately, otherwise known as stamp collecting. Here's a pile of stamps carefully culled from swap meets and garage sales. Rupert, what are you thinking of? Oh, I was just thinking of all the years I've wasted collecting stamps. Oh, like stamp collecting. Oh, that's all right. That's quite a nice hobby, that. Yes, but it's not enough. Don't you understand? I'm lonely. I'm so terribly lonely. All right, Homer. You beat those stamp Nazis with good old-fashioned American complaining. Oh, if it weren't for you, we'd be at the mercy of weekend philatelists. You know, why didn't you just say stamp collectors? Because I'm tired of dumbing myself down for you. From Spain and two from Japan. I got a couple from Israel and Azerbaijan. I got a plenty from Poland, but none from Sudan. or from Fiji or Uzbekistan. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together. Live from my office, but we were at the Stamp Show last week. This is Stamp Show here today, episode number 144. I'm Cash. Porg is coming. I'm Scott, and I'm having a better week than a jar of pickles. This is Tom. And I'm your stamp mistress, Dawn. What did any of that mean? Cash. Well, well, I can't have fries with that. Porg is the new guy who's coming out in the Star Wars movie. It's their new merchandise item. It's adorable. It's adorable. It's a little furry it's penguin. It's sickeningly adorable. Hence, it's Disney's signature. Oh, is this like a Star Wars triple or something? A penguin triple? No, it has eyes. Um, and feet. And lots of fur. I want the Pink Panther theme every time Calvin goes walking by the door now. Wow, I can't believe I got a chorus on that. Hey, that was pretty good. Can we have that as like a bump? On- <laughs> we can use it as a bump. Ah. <laughs> We're gonna finish. You guys, you guys gonna, you guys gonna finish this portion so we can move on to the real podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Please. Just because we're a week ahead, I don't want to take all week to record it. <laughs> Excellent point. Today we have our Sescal spectacular. If you want to hear our Sescal extravaganza, check out episode ninety-two. Next year will be our Sescal Mega Extravaganza Spectacular, so stay tuned. Let's get started. Okay, go for it. We're here at uh, Sescal looking at the exhibits, and introduce yourself. My name is Mike Mailer from Santa Monica, California. My exhibit is all about Nevada fiscal history, which is documents with bearing uh, revenue stamps. 
and um, a lot of these are just dripping with history and I picked out the two that I think are the most historically captivating. Cool. Now there's only two things that I gave two stars to and now this one is has to do with the fabled Lost Breifogel Ledge. It's the most famous lost mine of the West and I found this, I was asked to help lotting um, in an auction, a, basically a numismatic auction. And there was a balance lot and stuck in the pile was this little draft, kind of un unassuming looking, but it's made out to C.C. Breifogel. And as soon as I heard that, the hairs on my neck stood up because I knew all about the history of the lost Breifogel. And I'll just reprise oh. it quickly that this fellow, and I'm going to read here, that um, in January 1864, the most travel, much traveled New Yorker, Charles Breifogel, found himself in Austin, Nevada, without prospects. By then, stout, balding, in his mid-50s, Breifogel was now struck with a delayed case of gold fever. Years before, he had met one of the original Death Valley Argonauts, who told him of a vast ledge of gold-bearing quartz there. Now, Breifogel and four companions headed south to prospect that fearsome region. Near the Amargosa Desert, Breifogel embarked on a solitary excursion and returned days later exhausted and half-starved with a few pieces of ore from what he thought must be the old Argonaut's lost ledge. His partners were eager to see the Bonanza, but were out of provisions and Indians had run off most of their animals, and they were hard-pressed to get out alive. When Breifogel finally returned to Austin in mid-March, assays of his samples were a stratospheric $4,500 to the ton in gold. <laughs> now, $100 to the ton is paying ore. Okay. And $4,500 is just basically unheard of. It means it's and, like really gold-saturated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And so now what this is is a grub stake check that was made out to supply him for his next trip. And... Um, you see it's for $100 even made out to him and it's by a guy named Pony Duncan and it's signed by him on the back but the rest of it is he basically spent the rest of his life trying to find it never did and there's been dozens and dozens of people trying to find the loss of Breifogel and many have died because it's such a harsh region oh. so yeah it says here uh, in 1893 it was said that the search had taken 60 lives one innocent journalist even reported that Death Valley had been named because of all the Breifoglers who had died there. Wow. <laughs> they died because it was a fearsome place to begin with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but yeah. So actually the story, this I, I found it in the large lot. I said, you know, this has to be uh, lotted individually. And I actually talked to um, Robert Lingenfelder who wrote this book. He said, wow, what a great find, Mike. You know, that should be worth like a couple thousand at least. So anyway, they put it in and I was watching and nobody bid. I just put my hand up and I got it for like a pittance. Oh, wow. And then he said, you know, you're the one to, do, you know, you made the find, you deserve it, so. That's cool. Yeah. This just caught my eye. A jurat. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. She's, she's a notary, so. Yeah, that was a standard thing. You had to say, mm -hmm. this was constituted a certified statement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they had to put five cents. It's appended to the end of lots of deeds. And, well, this is a bond where they had to go and say, yes, I'm the person who signed this in the notary. Sunset, yeah. Why don't you give a real quickie because some people may not know why revenues appear on documents. Okay, the, these stamps were all to support the un Union effort in the Civil War. 
they they taxed basically everything that moved and some things got even taxed two or three times like something that was that you bought the manufacturer paid a tax the peddler paid a tax and so one of the taxes was almost any kind of paper that changed hands had to have a stamp tax put on this is basically a, che a bank check and then you had to put a two cent stamp on there hmm. uh, deeds there's a whole uh, different slate of taxes depending on what kind of document it was and then the Nevada and when Nevada became a state they uh, they knew how to spend money but they didn't know how to raise it so <laughs> so they mimic the US uh, stamp taxes and that's why you see a lot of these have a, Nevada, a US stamp and a Nevada in the same denomination excellent yeah you have another item you wanted to do. Yeah, the other item has to do with the Sutro Tunnel. Oh. oh. So, this is, a, um, this is an item that I gave the title, Mr. Sutro Buys a Town Site. And what it is, is a deed made out by the Union, I'm sorry, the Central Pacific Railroad. And it was billed as an autograph item because it's signed not only by Leland Stanford, whose signature is popular, but not that rare. But it also bears the signature of Mark Hopkins, who was another one of the, the big four railroad makers. Um, and he, his signature is just exceedingly rare. So when I saw it, it had been appraised as an autograph item. But what I was interested in is the fact that it had two Nevada stamps and it was made out to Adolf Sutro. And Sutro is just a magical name in Nevada because he built this the Sutro Tunnel, which was an ingenious uh, idea the Comstock mines which were pouring out silver were plagued with just torrents of hot water coming out of them from the inside of the mountain and they had the actually the most powerful pumping engines in the world were pumping the uh, water up to the surface and Sutra said let's just build a tunnel from down in the mountain four miles away and we'll intersect the mines, and the water will just drain all out, and we can take the ore out too, down to this, it was near the Carson River, where all the mills were that crushed the ore. So, at first he got a, a enthusiastic support until the, the powers that be realized how much he was gonna be he making. Gonna be for, rich. Yeah. yeah, and so then they, then they uh, opposed him, and he finally did get the tunnel built, but by then, tragically for him, all the, the good ore was gone. But anyway, so this one, why was the Union Central Pacific selling land to Adolf Sutro? And it turned out that um, as an incentive to build the railroad, since the government couldn't pay them, they didn't have any money to pay them, they, they gave them land on either side of the right-of-way of the railroad. Every other uh, section of land is a mile square, a mile on either side. And it so happens that one of the, the one that they were selling, the section, this is for one section of land, and it's only described in terms of range, township, so-and-so. And I looked and looked, and I found a book on Sutro, and it showed the town of Sutro. I said, oh, my God, that is the section where that's in this deed. And that section encompassed the mouth of the tunnel. That's where they started. They, they made the tunnel first, mm -hmm. and they started digging from there. And so, of course, he had to own it. Yeah. And he had already finagled Congress into um, giving him the right to buy that land at a cheap price. And so, he, in fact, he even got he got it for a dollar. And I'm saying that the, uh, what did I say? That uh, perhaps he greased the deal with some tunnel some company stock, of which he had an ample yeah. supply. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. So was this the so, same Sutro that did the Sutro baths in? Yeah, yeah. He, he he got out. You know, he sold out privately, and he made his million. Yeah. And um, the stockholders were the ones that took the bath, and then he went and became the mayor of San Francisco and built the Sutro baths. And he was also one an early um, book collector of ancient oh. books. He had one of the biggest libraries of ancient Very in, in Canabula, they call it. Well, anyway, what I like this to me is the one of the quintessential Western documents. Why? Because it marries the two two of the great themes of the West: the Transcontinental Railroad and Comstock mining. And you have it all in the same piece of paper. Perfect. And how did you do on your exhibit? Uh, I got a large gold. Yes, you mm -hmm. did. Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. That, that was a very good accomplishment. Thank and you. a great exhibit. Excellent. Stamp show here today. Stamp show here today. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together. We're here at Seskel looking at the exhibits, and we have Les here, and we're looking at his exhibit. Uh, introduce yourself. Okay, I'm Les Lanfear, the third. And I'm from San Diego, California, and I've been collecting since I was a kid. and never stopped. Just like everybody. Just, well, not, no. not like everybody. A lot of people <laughs> Well, like certainly. you, yes. But not me. Oh, okay. I took a break. Oh, okay. Usually a break for childhood or college or something, you know. Mm -hmm. Raising kids. Yeah. So you probably want me to explain what... The, I collect a couple areas. I collect U.S. officials, which aren't here today. But the, the exhibit we're looking at today is my U.S. penalty mail. And the U.S. government uh, did away with, well, we're not happy with having to buy U.S. official stamps in 1870s. And so they very quickly, the U.S. official stamps came out in 73. By 18, in four years, in 1877, they created penalty covers, which, we, which were around for over 100 years. And they would say, the later ones that most of you may have seen said, Penalty for private use, $300. And it's been $300 forever. And that's back in the 1870s, that was a lot of money. So uh, one of the things that, that Cash likes is my cover from President Arthur. Of which, course. Which nobody has ever heard of, President <laughs> Arthur. I mention it sometimes in these blank stares from people like, who? Our, our listeners have because of him. Okay. Well, <laughs> Other people haven't heard of him, man. He's on the list, they just don't know who he is. So he came in, and he did a couple philatelically interesting things. Aside from this as a morning cover, he, he didn't use the executive branch, executive mansion corner card envelopes. He said, Office of the President of the United States uh, official. So he was trying to tell people he wasn't in the White House, well, at that time the executive mansion, it was called the Executive Mansion. And so he wanted them to know he was someplace else. He was getting the, the White House was being fixed up. And so he had the, you know, a special clause. Because it wasn't up to his yeah. high standard. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was a bit of a dandy. Oh, okay. <laughs> a bit? A bit. <laughs> and the other thing he did in his mail, he got rid of the penalty clause because he didn't like the word penalty on his envelopes so which was against the law he had to actually should have used it like all the presidents before him from 77 you know grant and hayes and who else here oh garfield 
but the presidents after him, all the way up to Roosevelt, uh, stopped using it because then Roosevelt changed it. So and he went back and he actually changed the, the name of the executive mansion to White House over, we won't talk about it tonight, but it was a, a very controversial black and white issue back in 18, eight, early 1900s. And he changed the name overnight. So the other thing you were looking at down here, let's go a little bit this way. In the 1880s, actually 82, there was an Arctic expedition uh, for a year north of the Arctic Circle, which to me sounds like crazy, but they did it anyway, and they took all these people, and they went, the next year they went to, rest, to pick them up, and they weren't there. And then they went back the next year, and they weren't there. And the third year, they created a big, huge it's called the Arctic Relief Expedition, and there's a cover here from that, that organization. And they got people from England to come over, and all kinds of people to help them. And they found, they did find, rescued seven people. One guy died on the way home. He's probably not real happy about that. And this is the only Arctic cover that I've seen. Well, there's one other in the officials, but it's the only one I've seen in, in the penalty mail. It's very unusual. So they rescued seven out of how many? That I don't know. I think it was probably 20 or 30. It was a big party. Oh. Mm. And they were all scientists, and they were writing their reports, and they actually got all their, their reports back. They got all their, you know, daily records and all that kind of stuff. Just a lot of them. They accused them of cannibalism, of course. Because oh. how could they have survived that long without eating each other? Well, they didn't prove it. They didn't disprove it. So mm. he was uh, really... It sort of didn't do him well, let's put it that way. <laughs> Got it. But it's been known in really uh, expedition that had a different name originally, and I don't think I have it here, no, but it became his expedition because he was the guy that was running it, even though he wasn't, this quote, the sponsor of it. So there's one other cover you were interested in. Let's walk down this way. And this cover, this exhibit shows all of the departments of the, of the U.S. government back from 1877 to 1909. And one of the covers that's really, I think it's really neat, is from the two weeks after the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out the post office was one of the buildings that survived because of around 12 postal employees defended it. And, you know, who would do that today? <laughs> Probably nobody. No. It, but it was amazing. They defended it. It was one of the few surviving buildings that wasn't trashed. It wasn't destroyed, burned down, whatever. And so there was all kinds of, from looking at, it's a postcard. He's sending it off to, there's a request for, a guy wrote in. It turns out he's in, on the internet. His name is on the internet someplace. So he's involved in manufacturing or something. He wanted to know if his son was alive, it looks like. And so the response is a postcard produced for this by the post office saying, your request for your son has been turned over to the Citizens, citizens Bureau. Then they're going to look in the, in, further into it. And he says, uh, what's in here? It says, uh, keep up courage in handwriting from the postmaster. 
So this is the only one that's ever been seen, um, pe only penalty cover we've seen from related to the uh, for the earthquake. And I think that's, I really like that cover. Mm -hmm. um, and that's two of the ones you thought were inter interesting. Uh, so how did you do on, what award did you get? Well, I only got a gold. I didn't get a large gold. Oh, only a gold. Yeah, yeah. only a gold. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations well, on that. Thank you, Cash. Great exhibit. Thank, thank you, you very much. Stamp show here today. Stamp show here today. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together. As a collector, you have to respect the dealer's material. So as a dealer, respect the customer. Yeah. And, and another thing, too, is uh, talking. A lot of times, you know, you say, hello, how are you? Uh, nice fire outside. We have a nice fire going on in Southern California. And they go, oh, yeah, okay. And then if they don't want to talk, let them look at your stamps. Why would you interrupt them while they're trying to transact with you? Oh, absolutely. Wait for I the, see that all the time. Wait for them to, wait for them to, if they want to talk to you, fine. If, if they want to just look at your stamps, fine. Yep. You don't need to interrupt. Well, that's the worst thing is you can actually kill your own sales by interrupting the person. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, they could be looking at stuff and you bring more stuff for them to look at and interrupt them. That can put them off as well. Wait until they, you know, if they're already looking at something, wait until they look up and then is there anything else I can show you? Yeah. Or would you like to see some more material in that? I was going to say there's, um, going back to Cash's thing about the, you know, do you have any Russia stamps? Mm -hmm. Perfect, perfect example of something like that is the classic question from, I'm going to go back to my, you know, favorite place, Disneyland. What time does the three o'clock parade start? <laughs> it seems like a really lame question to anybody. You're even mm -hmm. kind of laughing about it. But here's the thing. Where are you in Disneyland asking that question? Mm -hmm. Disneyland's parades run from Main Street all the way to oh, good point. Fantasyland. Yeah. And so it's three o'clock in Main well, Street. Well, a lot of times, though, there's two parades. Uh. There's one in, like, in the early afternoon and there's one in the evening. And if it starts on Main Street in the morning at 3 o'clock, it's starting from Fantasyland. Mm -hmm. And it takes about half an hour to 45 minutes from the time that parade starts at one end to where it actually starts you know it's like what time does the road parade rose parade start well where are you sitting yeah are you sitting at the beginning of the rose parade or are you sitting at the end yeah you know so if you're halfway down main street what time does the three o'clock parade start well if i'm in this store if you're going to be right out here it's probably going to start about 3 30 because it's coming from here it's coming from there it it it's an it's a more open-ended question than a lot of people put thought into. And I thought that the first time somebody asked me that, I was like, seriously? Well, it starts at three. And then someone explained that to me, yeah. and I had passes for so many years. It's like, you know, that actually, that, that silly little question actually makes a lot of sense. Well, there was, uh, I'm, I'm a wine judge. And we were always taught way back, you know, somebody will come up and say, I like really dry wines, like white Zinfandel. And for those who don't know, 
White Zinfandel is exactly the opposite of dry. And instead of saying, well, let me teach you about what dry is, they say, well, if you like dry wines like White Zinfandel, let me suggest, and then you suggest other wines that are very sweet like Zinfandel. Moscatos, Rieslings. Exactly. You know, maybe an off-dry Riesling, you know, not getting too much into it. Don't necessarily correct them, but just go with what they've said. Right. Yeah. Oh, I have one more thing, and I think I already said this, but I'll end the podcast with it. Um, Whether you're selling stamps or buying a car, this is my favorite advice to people who are buying a car, is when somebody does what's called a closing question, somebody says, how much is this? Generally speaking, the next person who talks will be, let's call them the loser of the negotiation. So when you go in and anybody who has bought a car has seen this, the person behind the desk does not ask you, how much will you pay for this car? They do not. They specifically do not ask you that. They say, what will it take to get you into this car? What kind of payment are you looking for? Right. They don't mention anything. They say something like that, and then they shut up. If you learn anything like that, you will be a great negotiator because you will say something like, this price is this much. This the, the cost of this is $100, and it is very much worth it because it catalogs $200. Then he's sitting there not saying anything. The idea for you is to shut up and not say anything either. Because he could very well be thinking, let's see, I have $150. I really want this stamp for $100. That'll give me $50. I mean, he could be thinking about that. And then you pipe up and say, oh, I'll do 75. Well, he already in his mind agreed to a hundred and you just talked yourself out of 25 bucks in cars. It's worse because in cars, you know, you'll lose thousands of dollars. Oh yeah. You say I'm looking for five. I'm looking to pay about $500 a month. They'll find you the cheapest car they can (laughs) and give you the highest interest rate possible (laughs) to give you your $500 a month payment. Yeah. Even if that car should have been 250 bucks a month. Yeah, there's a lot of things, but ask your closing question, tell them how much the item is, and then shut up and let them buy the stamp. Anyway, anything else? I think that's about it, unless you want to talk about after shows dinners. Oh, after show dinners. That's the fun part. Oh, yeah. I thought it was supposed to be after dinner shows. No, after show. (laughs) Yeah, you go to the after dinner show after your show dinner. Um, when you go to multiple, uh, uh, multiple day stamp shows, um, a lot of times the, obviously everybody has to have dinner and sometimes dealers will go out with other dealers. Sometimes if they have really good customers, the dealers will go out with their customers. It's all about developing relationships and, uh, but that's the social part of doing stamps. Oh, it's social and it's business. Oh, Absolutely. The, the the more comfortable you are with somebody, uh, the more likely you are to continue a business relationship. 
And it works both ways. As a collector, you develop a relationship with a dealer. And that dealer now gets to know you. Not only can he keep an eye out for material you might want, but he may also give you a better discount. It, you show up at his table and he offers you a 5% discount. He doesn't know you from Adam. You've developed this relationship. He doesn't. He blows right by that 5% and you're a 20% guy right off the top. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you can negotiate more, but he starts at a lower price point because now he knows you, he likes you, you've developed this relationship, you're a loyal customer. It's like a loyalty discount in most respects. And uh, he stamp, wants he wants to dealers keep, want friends too. Yeah, and he wants to keep you coming back. Yep. So, I mean, he knows that you're going to buy this type of material. He can go out and buy it. He can pay a little bit more for it because he knows he's got a guaranteed sale coming up. He's not going to have to leave his money in that big accumulation of stuff that ain't moving. Yeah. He's going to flip it to you. He can make a smaller percentage profit. You're going to be happy. He's going to be happy. Uh, It's how business works. And more than that also, when you are out at lunch with these people, you learn things that you don't know. You learn what people are looking for what, and you may dig something up and say, hey, I have one of those at home. Let me send it to you and go, great, I have a person for that. You know, things like that. The the really big advantage is that as time goes by, you don't have to negotiate so hard. He knows that you buy low-end, faulty stuff at 10%. And you have a market for that. You can sell low-end, faulty stuff and make money at 10%. Well, he's not going to sit there and start at 50 and you have to negotiate down. He no. goes, I know your market. I've been with you. We we had Chinese food together. You told me everything about your business strategy and how you do it. You know, there's nothing that we need to do here. Yeah. So... And he's just going to offer it to you. He might offer you at 12% and let you chew him down to 10. Or he might just straight up <laughs> offer you at 10 and say, here you go. Take yep. it or leave it. Yep. And th- But at that point, he's not going to go- negotiate because he knows that that's your price point yeah. and, and you're good with that. Yeah. And so a lot of times it'll make your transactions smoother and quicker because now you don't have to go through the negotiation process. Yep. Well... Tom just walked away from the board, so I guess we're done. Yeah, we're kind of petering out. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. This has been Cash, Scott, Tom, and I'm your host, Dawn. Continue the conversation at Stamp Show Here Today on Facebook. You can ask us questions, see pictures of the stamps, make comments, and add to the conversation on Facebook. You can also ask the experts your stamp questions at bluepaper@gradingmatters.com. You can listen to all of our past podcasts at stampshowheretoday.com, podbean.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And as always, keep collecting. This episode of Stamp Show Here Today is brought to you by the Philatelic Book of Secrets, the book that teaches you about repurse, regums, color varieties, and much more. Get yours for $10 at www.philatelicsecrets.com today.
Hi, this is Bob Prager with Gary Posner Incorporated, and we're in Long Island, New York, in New Jersey, and our philosophy of Gary Posner Incorporated is this. We would rather pay very fair prices on nine out of ten collections that we look at versus trying to just offer very low prices on one out of two and making a big score. That's never our philosophy. So if you want to be treated fairly, please give us a call anytime at 800-323-4279. And again, my name is Bob Prager.